This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers is your one-stop shop to level up your skills. These episodes are a great way to get a preview of the fascinating subjects and knowledge from my guests, but if you want to build a deeper understanding and practical skills that will serve you on your regenerative journey, then you should check out their titles, like Coppice Agroforestry, The Book of Nature Connection, Practical No-Till Farming, Wild Plant Culture, and so many more. They've got audio, digital, and hard copy books so that you can choose your favorite format. Find it all now at NewSociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So I've been so happy to see how popular the concept of growing one's own food has become in recent years. Especially since the pandemic, a lot of us have been connecting deeply with the need to build food resilience by cultivating our own gardens, and quite a few have even gone further and started to grow at market scale. That's a beautiful thing to be able to eat fresh, healthy produce from your own land. But I've often wondered as well, how can we cross that long, dark, and cold period of winter when fresh local veggies are tough to come by? And though there are quite a few volumes about season extension in the garden, I had never really come across anyone who was actively planting for the deep months of winter. And so I was thrilled when I found out that New Society publishers were putting out a whole book on exactly this subject. So building on years of research, experimentation, and collaboration, and co-authored by Catherine Sylvester and Jean-Martin Fautier, the Winter Market Garden is a beautifully illustrated practical guide to winter vegetable production for small farmers growing in northern climates. Now I got to speak with Catherine Sylvester, who is a professional agronomist and director of vegetable production and leader of the Market Garden team at Le Ferme de Croix-de-Tom. That's the Four Seasons Farm for us English speakers. They're in Quebec, Canada. Now, Catherine develops, implements, and teaches best practices for cold season growing, specializing in crop protection and greenhouse production for northern climates. And in this episode, we cover just about every focus in this very complete book, from where the interest and research into winter growing started, sources of knowledge and inspiration for their ongoing experiments into winter growing, strategies and season planning, and even sales and marketing advice for the off-season produce. Catherine also gives crucial advice on the very practical side of things, like structures and season extension tools, greenhouse heating devices, disease and pest protection, harvest and cold storage, and even lists of plants that have grown well for them, as well as those which have struggled. Now this episode could be very well the key to extending your home production of fresh veggies, whether at home or in the market garden, for the entire year. And so you may want to have a notebook for this one and follow the link in the show notes to get your own copy of the book. So with that intro out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Catherine Sylvester. Hi, welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for making time today. I'm really excited to talk about winter market gardening with you today. This is something that I haven't yet explored on this podcast, but I feel closely connected to because I grew up in Minnesota where the winters are really long and it represents kind of a dead period for fresh food. And you have helped to pioneer some of the ways of continuing to produce high quality, mostly vegetables, uh, through this period that most people have struggled with. But before we get into all of the specifics and the details about that, could you give me a little insight onto your background and how you started growing vegetables to begin with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thank you for having me. Uh, Good question. How did I start growing vegetables? I didn't start out to be a farmer, not at all. So when we study in Quebec, uh, no one's 
gives you being a farmer as an option for your future. It doesn't exist. That's not like an option. So I didn't uh, start out uh, studying agriculture. I studied political science for many years in college. And then when I ended my studies, I really wanted to do something more concrete and finding change in uh, my work, like uh, doing change with my work, not just thinking about it. So I thought farming could be a good option. I started with uh, urban agriculture, but I was a bit discouraged by the quantities we were growing. I really wanted to grow like real quantities that were feeding people. So I uh, went out to work on a small scale um, vegetable farm. Actually, the farm where I work uh, was a, um, an old student of Jean Martin. Um, so it was the same model as La Grenette, his uh, home farm. So I went there and did the first season. I found it so hard. I didn't, I was, I told the farmer, like, how can you do this? It's too hard. I cannot do it. But what, once you do it for many months, it just becomes easy. So I really fell in love with the farmer work, with growing vegetables. And what from is, that point. What was the most challenging it, part about that? Was it mostly the physical labor or were there other challenges that made that a difficult transition for you? Um, good question. Yeah, so I, I had been uh, working um, behind a computer for like six years before I went on the farm. So that's a big shock to uh, work outside all day. And also, yeah. I think we were two or three people working on the farm. So... Uh, we were in, uh, involved in all the tasks on the farm. Sure. And the day we just went like nonstop physical work for eight hours and yeah. like almost running from a task to the other. So I wasn't used to like that intensity of work and never stopping. So it was a, a big shock and a big adaptation I had to do to learn how to cope in that work environment and like just adapting my body to that kind of rhythm. But yeah. I did found like comfort in it, but it took definitely more than a few weeks before I found that comfort. So yeah, so that was my first experience. And then Jean-Martin started Femme Quatre Temps in Quebec at the same time. So I applied to work there. I really wanted to learn with him. So I did the two-year apprenticeship that they have on the farm. So the first year, I managed the markets for the farm. And the second year, I managed the greenhouses. And doing that uh, two years program with Jonathan, I really confirmed like my choice that I wanted to, do, to work in agriculture for a career. And then um, I wanted to explore and learn more. I really wanted like to become very knowledgeable on agriculture just because it was so interesting for me like how soil works how um, greenhouse crop work I just I wasn't satisfied I really wanted to have more uh, knowledge so I went I went back to school and uh, to become an agronomist at McGill so solidifying like what I had learned on the field with more like um, research work and then I when I came back to the farm, Jonathan wanted to leave and start a new farm and a restaurant uh, called the Old Mill Farm. So I took on his work at the farm and become the uh, farm manager at Ferme Quatre and I've been doing that 
uh, for three years now. I'm starting my fourth season next year. So right now my work is to train people to start their own farm. So they come in with me for two years and when they first start, they know nothing about farming. And when they leave the farm, they're ready to have their own market garden. So that's my mission here. And so that's a part of my work. But the second part of my work is also to find ways to grow vegetables year round uh, on, with a Nordic climate that we have here. So that's the other like, side of my work. That's very interesting. Also to be able to experiment with the, all the greenhouses that we have here. We have so much space to the different experiments. We've been growing different vegetables over the years, trying different spacing, trying different settings, everything, and compiling the results. And that's what we uh, wrote in the book that we're publishing right now, is everything that we've tried here, we just uh, did a summary and wrote a book with it. That is such a cool story that you, first of all, went through the challenge and the shock to your body from the change in in line of work and that you actually embraced it. A lot of people don't make it through that gauntlet of, of challenges <laughs> of going into, into farming. And then from there, that was actually your window into going into the science and the ecology of how these processes work and how you can optimize them. I would love to dive deeper into what you learned in your agronomical degree, degree and how it fit with your experience on the land. But let's go first into that part of your job now, which is understanding how to extend the growing season and continue production throughout the winter, like you said, in the Nordic climate that you have there, which is <laughs> most associated with just not being able to grow anything. This is when you can barely even get animals out on pasture. What have you found in your research so far about what is possible in the winter season? Mm -hmm. So first of all, we didn't start off with growing vegetables in the winter at Ferme Quatretans. So when I first started here, we were growing, I would say like three seasons out of the year. So winter, we weren't growing anything. And we were doing lots of shoulder season growing. So we had like different season extension strategies. We have cold tunnels, we have caterpillar tunnels, we have low tunnels. We were doing lots of different things with these structures. But I would say from November to maybe February, we didn't have anything growing. But then we saw an opportunity. We, we had so many different structures. We have all these greenhouses also. We really wanted to try to find a way to use these structures in the winter and also never stop selling vegetables. So that's what was our first goal is how can we find a way to be always harvesting vegetables every week of the year. So we start with that goal and we started, started with just doing small experiments. We had Elliot Coleman's book with some information, but not that many on like What's the giant setting, for example, for these crops? What the, what's the exact uh, spacing you need to use? What's the dates you need to plant these crops? We didn't have this information, so we all had to try it and find the information for ourselves. So we did like trials and just trying to make some mistakes, but find information in that way. So the first year we had the idea to do what we called um, a salad bar. So we wanted to see just uh, leafy crops with uh, direct seeded leafy crops and harvesting 
these and selling these se separate so people at market would um, pick and choose the one they wanted and make their own salad mix. So we started with that simple idea, just direct seeded leafy vegetables and see what worked. And many of these really work well. We had good harvest that first year, but we had difficulties selling these crops because we had only leafy vegetables. So it's hard to sell like only one uh, vegetable. So then we really wanted to diversify uh, our production. So we started uh, trialing different vegetables and uh, increasing what we were doing. And right now, from that point, we tried so many different vegetables, just trying to see what could grow in the winter. And right now, I think we're doing over 30 different crops in the winter. We just found which one were working the best and we tried different dates to find at what time exactly you need to plant them for them to reach maturity before Christmas. So usually we want to have a harvest before Christmas and another one after Christmas. So that way you really have like harvest all the way uh, through the winter. So it's a bit how we did it. We really just tried things, uh, took uh, notes on what's working, what's not working, and build on that every year, um, not repeating mistakes and repeating successes. And from that point, we really found like a good calendar that would work every time. So we developed like I would say production recipes that you can repeat over time and you're sure that it will work. And that's how we went about it. That's really interesting. It's very methodical. I can't wait to hear more about the details of what you've found, but to give us more of a situation about the conditions that you're working in. I mean, we talked about you being in a Nordic climate, but let's go into what that means. What is your hardiness zone? And what's your latitude? Because that determines the hours of sunlight that you get throughout the winter and really how mm -hmm. those those low temperatures can get. You're giving me good questions, asking me good questions. I'm not sure what's our exact Well, latitude. I'm thinking about where you are, right? So from what I know of, of the map, you're probably in zone five or four of a hardiness yeah. zone? So five. Five, okay. Yeah. And... That latitude is about, well, I mean, you're almost on the 49th parallel, right? On the American border? Yeah, 45 north. 45th, yeah, 45th parallel. Yeah. That's so great. I think our lowest temperatures, uh, we speak in the Celsius in Quebec. It, well, us too but, here in Europe, yeah. Uh, okay, great. So it's like lowest temperatures will go down to minus 30 degrees Celsius. Okay. Um, I would say we have these temperatures usually like one or two weeks in January, but like the uh, usual temperatures in the winter will be between zero degrees Celsius to minus 20 degrees Celsius. So pretty cold yeah. temperatures. Like in the winter, you there's absolutely no way to grow anything in the field. You need structures to be able to uh, grow temperatures and you need solid structures like Caterpillar tunnels, you cannot uh, use them all winter long because they cannot hold the uh, snow. The snow, no, not here. even the, what do you call them, the gothic arches, the ones that are known for shedding snow pretty well. Uh, maybe the gothic ones. I don't have some on the farms, but yeah, maybe these. But you definitely need like very strong structures because we have so much snow uh, cover here. Yeah. 
So potentially like that's the limiting factor for the softer structures. If you maybe were in the same temperature range, but your winters were drier and you didn't get as much snow, do you think that could still be an option? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I would try. So let's go into more of these limitations here. Cause I'm thinking like, I'm not that far from your latitude, Barcelona and the little bit further North that I am is basically on the same latitude as San Francisco and Chicago, which is very surprising when you notice the difference in the actual climate that we have, but it doesn't mm -hmm. make that much of a difference in daylight in wintertime. How much does the lack of daylight affect what you're able to grow throughout the winter? Mm -hmm. So a good question. The light is definitely like the limiting factor of winter growing. So that's the thing that you need to look for and to be um, very aware of. And I would say you it it it's a constraint, but you can work around it if you're very uh, methodical about how you go about it. So you need to plant your crops before uh, the light decreases too much. Uh, for us, that means uh, about November 1st to February 1st, there is not a lot of light. So you need to have your crops in the soil way before that November 1st date. Because if you wait to that date, the crops will grow so slowly that you won't have a harvest before next spring. So that's not good because you want to be harvesting all winter long. So you need to plant your crops in advance. And that the, the date that you need to plant your crops will depend on which crop you're talking about. So most transplanted crops like parsley or celery, kale or Swiss chard, you'll need to go in earlier, like mid to uh, end of August because you want to uh, grow like huge plants. So when you're eating that November 1st date, you have huge plants and you'll harvest leaf per leaf every week on these plants. But if they're not mature, you're like, you're dead. You won't have harvest on these crops. And they then have enough leaves to be optimally photosynthesizing the tiny bit of light that they can get. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's how it works. And then direct seeded crops, you can go in a little later. So you can wait, like I'm direct seeding crops this week and next week we're in mid-October. Yep. So you can go in a little later. You have more like margins to work with, but you still have to go in before November 1st. And which and are then, these ones that you're direct seeding? So many different ones, but... I'm direct seeding like different kinds of mustard, some Mizuna, uh, mini kale. I'm direct. I'm trying this year a crop that's called Komatsuna. I don't know if you know about it. The yeah, Asian the green. Yeah. yeah, Asian green, supposed to have great yield. So I'm trialing this one this year. I'm also direct seeding some uh, Tokyo Bikana Chinese cabbage. Uh, this is one of my favorite. I started doing it last year for leafy greens and it has incredible yields. So I'm very happy with it. And also it can regrow without light. Like in the um, window that we don't have a lot of light, it regrows. I think it's the fastest uh, crop to regrow. So that's a big advantage for that crop. So I'm definitely seeding some of that. I'm uh, seeding some arugula, which 
also works well in the winter. It's not the most cold hardy, but it, it um, similarly to the uh, Tokubikana Chinese cabbage, it regrows well um, with limited light. So it's a good crop to grow in the winter. So I'm direct seeding all of these uh, this weekend, next week. Exciting. Okay, so we've covered quite a few different types of greens. Are there any options that you've had success with outside of leafy greens? I think like most crops that you'll grow in the winter will be some kind of leafy green vegetable. It, I've had success with um, acari turnips and radishes, but you need to see them after Christmas. So I see them very early in January. And that uh, seeding calendar works really well. You have good um, good results, but I've tried seeding them like late in the fall, and it's weird what they do, but they kind of elongate themselves, looking for light, mm. and you don't have like a good root quality. Also, if you seed them, um, let's say in December, usually they're they're not very happy. It's like too long before they have good light access and they tend to bolt. Uh -huh. So it's not a good uh, seeding calendar. So I would recommend seeding them in January and that works uh, really well. So I had good success with that. I also do, it's, it's a leafy green, but I do some bok choy, uh, which works well. I do some carrots. Uh, it works well also, but I prefer to do some carrots in the field in the fall and, and get them in the cold room and sell them with my leafy uh, greens. It's a better profitability setup uh, to do that. So usually I don't want to plant crops in the winter that are a single harvest crops. I always want to have multiple harvest crops because they'll be in the grounds for so long that you need to be able to harvest from them many times to have like good uh, yields per bed. And then also the other thing is that you have like two windows for plant growth. You have, I would say, let's say August to November 1st, that's your first window for your plant growth. And then you have February 1st to April 1st for your plant growth. But if you let's say transplant bok choy on a bed on um, September 1st, you harvest it on October or November 1st, but then you have an empty bed for all winter long because you don't have enough light to grow another crop. So that's not a good strategy. So I wouldn't recommend doing that. If you do single harvest crops, you need to interplant them with multiple harvest crops. So what I do is that I will plant kale on a bed interplanted with some bok choy. So when I harvest the bok choy, it leaves a place for the kale to grow and I don't have an empty bed for all winter long. Yeah, so much about good market gardening is space optimization. I imagine that's something you've got quite down to a science by now. And <laughs> so of the different crops that you've trialed, are there any that you've just completely given up on, not even worth going into anymore, you haven't found any success with? A uh, good question. I would say the first one, I'm not sure how you say it in English. In French, we call it mouche. I think it's corn salad in English. Could be. Yeah. It only goes in Spanish, which is probably not helpful <laughs> right now, but yes. Yeah, I think it's 
yeah so mouch is um kind of a french green that most french people like but it's so light like it doesn't weigh a lot mm -hmm. and it doesn't regrow also it doesn't regrow so it just the yields are so poor that mm. it, it's not worth it uh, growing it in the winter because you're it doesn't pay its its uh, space in the greenhouse so i've abandoned that one mm, i didn't stop a lot of crops i would say like i'm mostly like usually i try a new crop and i'm surprised at how well it works in the winter like i've had way more good surprises than than deceptions okay um yeah i'm often surprised by how well vegetables grow in uh, cold temperatures so it's a good thing and for sure i'm always trying like crops that have good potential i've had lots of discussion with other growers like what are the asian greens that we don't know about that could work in the winter so I'm trialing all of these different um, crops that people don't even know that exist, but I learn about them, try to find the seeds, and and then you have to sell them. So you have you need to do a lot of like a promotion of your crops because you're selling something that people don't know it exists. So it's hard to to sell, but it it's just a, another part of another challenge for the winter production is the crops that grow well in the winter or usually some crops that we don't know about yeah so, yeah. yeah that's so an interesting part of the r&d within the market garden is like there's so many excellent crops out there that you can trial but if nobody knows about them and you can't sell them it's always going to be a little hobby side project i hope that more people get adventurous with their eating that <laughs> these types of things will be easier to sell in the future yeah we we had good strategies like doing finding ways to um, market these vegetables we for restaurants they're very interesting because they're mm. always looking for new and exciting vegetables that people don't know about to put on their menu so uh, we had very good sales with restaurants with these uh, funky winter vegetables and then for our market customers we do some um, csa baskets and we don't give them the choice of the <laughs> So they're forced, forced to try them and we had very good feedback of our customers. Like they, they love the, the greens that we do and they want more of it. I think people crave in the Nordic region, I think people crave like fresh vegetables in the winter sure. and like good quality fresh vegetables because the one you can buy at the grocery store are not good quality because they're all imported. So they're very excited to find out like, yes, we can grow these vegetables in our climate and you have access to it now uh, with our winter baskets. So yeah, we, I can imagine. Well. Yeah. well, look, okay, so we've covered some of the challenges with light restriction, but that leaves us with cold. And we started <laughs> by talking about what kind of structures are necessary. Like you said, the, the hard frame structures to keep the snow off and uh, withstand the snow load. But there are quite a few other options. Can you go through the things that are outlined in your book about how to keep mm -hmm. at least the minimal temperatures from going too low? Yeah. So you you have different strategies. We use most of them at different times of the year. So we start in the fall with um, 
installing our caterpillar tunnels and our low tunnels on uh, crops in the fields like spinach or lettuce or uh, we have some mini romains on some green onions, things that can uh, within some cold. So we have these structures that are more for season extension. So we use these to like bridge the gap between the field and then the greenhouse crops because you always have to uh, have some crops that are in harvest if you want to grow year round. So you need these like intermediate uh, structures. So we use these and then we transition into our cold tunnels uh, that are not heated. And we also have our greenhouses that are now all heated in the winter. So we did lots of trials on the subjects of heating uh, greenhouses in the winter. So we weren't sure at first, should we heat, should we not heat, should we, if we eat at what temperatures are we heating? Are we using soil heat? Are we not using soil heat? So we had to find like the right settings. I would say we're still trialing that side of it. But we what at what point we are now is that we're heating all greenhouses in the winter. And the main reason for that is that we're now we now have electric heating. So it's cheaper than propane heating that we used to have. And also it's almost carbon neutral. So it's a more ecological way of doing things. And the main reason I would say that we're eating all greenhouses is that we measured our yield and compare unheated greenhouse and with the heated greenhouse. And we find out that the yields in the heated greenhouse are twice uh, what we have in the unheated greenhouse. So it's a big difference in difference in yields that can justify using the heat. Yeah. But then you you also need to keep your energy bill like as low as possible because otherwise you're um, losing your profitability very fast because heating in the winter can be very expensive. Uh, if you use um, propane heating, I know in Europe their costs are very very high. So you need to look out for that. And they're very high here too. So with electricity, we had a good balance between um, electricity costs and then uh, our yields and our sale. So we, that's the strategy we have right now. So we heat at three degrees Celsius, the greenhouse during the winter. And we have a, like a flat climate. So same temperatures at night and during the day. But then with the sun, the greenhouse can go up uh, to 20, 25 degrees easily in the winter because the sun heats the greenhouse. But then on cloudy day, the lowest temperatures we have will be three degrees Celsius in the greenhouse. And then the other big question is using row covers. So I hate uh, using row covers because they're so like cumbersome to use. You need to open them, close them every day. It's just added work that doesn't uh, create value for your customers. So I've stopped using them in all heated greenhouses. I just don't use any of them, but I'll use them in our cold tunnels because most crops won't survive without the added row cover. So you really need to install them if you don't, you're not using heat. But then you need to remind 
remember that the rule cover is um, decreasing the light access for your crop. So you'll need to open them just so the light can go through the crops. So during the day, you need to open them and close them at night. So that's just added work uh, to your winter season. So you need to factor that in when you decide to use them or not. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, you know, to keep in mind when we're talking about heating, it's not trying to get the heat up to a certain point. It's just preventing it from going below a threshold that would damage the crop, right? And I guess mm -hmm. that you would constantly tweak with that. Do you, I would assume you just have automatic thermostats that regulate that? Uh, all our greenhouses on, are on an automated, automated system. Yeah. So uh, everything is, all the climate in our greenhouses are automated. So I just tell the system, I want to have um, a temperatures of three degrees Celsius and it will open the vents and start the furnaces as the day goes to maintain that temperature. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so that probably represents easy. a pretty big upfront investment in getting that system running, but then you calculate and hope to recoup that investment through the sales when nobody else has fresh produce. Yeah. Also, I use all these systems in the summer too. So it's... Yeah. I, the way I see it is more, I, I bought the, these systems for this summer production, and then I'm uh, decreasing the time that I need to pay back these systems by using them in the winter also. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so when you were doing the research for these different techniques and things to trial out in your experiments, did you find sources of information, skills, resources from other Nordic growers and people who have a tradition of producing food from these areas? Or was it mostly new technology and new techniques? I would say it was mostly new, new information that we had to find out for ourselves. Because when I researched the subject, I was very surprised by how little there is on the subject. I researched like, how do soil react with cold temperatures? Like how fast is the fertilizer mineralization? And there wasn't many information because growing crops in cold soil is not like a very popular subject to uh, give funds to. Like there's not that much money to be made on that subject. Hmm. So historically there isn't a lot of research on the subject um, of growing crops in the cold. So it was very hard to find a good research on it and to know, okay, how will my fertilizer react in these cold soil? So what kind of fertilizer should I use uh, in the winter? Should I change my strategy from what I do in the summer? I couldn't find that many research. Another big thing was how do pests react in the cold? Like usually in the summer, I use beneficial insects to manage my pests. But then I talked with, um, uh, I have an entomologist friend and I talked to her like, how should I manage uh, aphids, let's say in the winter when the beneficial insects are not working and she didn't have any answer for me. Like there's no research on that subject. So when you try new things, you find out like you don't have guidelines on how to succeed with it. So you need 
to fight it for yourself. But then what I found is that by doing it, we uh, increase the interest in growing crops in the winter. And now we were working with some researchers to find these answers that we were looking for when we first started. So it's coming, like the answers are coming, but it's not there yet. Well, it's still really in the early stages and it's wonderful that you get to pioneer something like this. It must be as exciting as it is frustrating to not have guidelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting to have more precise answers, but when we tried it in practice, we did found like most of the answers we were looking for because if things are working, I mean, our recipe is good. It might be, we can improve it definitely with more research, but we did just by practice found like what works and what doesn't work. Well, beyond what you're finding about what is possible for growing in winter climates, I'm very curious as to what your process looks like for setting up these experiments and what sort of metrics and success you're measuring for. How, how does that process look like when you're setting up a new trial to run? Good question. Uh, the first thing to remember is that we're a commercial farm. So yes, we do research, but we still need to be profitable. So most of my experiment, I have that in mind, like I need to stay profitable with what I'm growing, even though I'm not sure if it will work. So if I'm trialing a new crop, let's say, or a new planting date, I will do only a small portion of it. For the first year that I'm trying it, I'll do maybe a third of a bed of it. Like right now I'm trialing like chrysanthemum. Is that the right way to Chrysanthemum, the flower? Yeah, but you can also grow it for food. Oh, so, yeah. And, yeah. And it grows well in the cold. So I'm trialing that crop, but I'm doing only a third of a bed because I don't know how to grow it. I've never seen it. I don't know what it tastes like. And I don't know if my customers want it. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm decreasing the risk by doing just small portion of it. And then if it works well, the second year, I'll go all out and grow more of it. So that's the first part. And I would say I'm very cautious about like what I measure because I don't want to lose my time like doing 10 different types of measurement and then not using them because the time I use to track all of these uh, data, I'm not creating value for the customers. So I'm not doing that much record keeping but the most uh, important thing that I'm tracking is the uh, dollar per bed I'm, um, I have in the winter. So I track my yields per bed. And to do that, I use my, um, not sure how to say that, contability, my account system. Yeah, your accounting system. Accounting system, that's right. So I have all the information there. So I don't have to manually enter the information. I just use my sales to track my yields. So that's a really fast way to do it, that you're not using your time to track things. So that's the, like the main uh, matrix that I use to decide, am I increasing the quantity of that crops I'm growing? Am I decreasing it? Am I stopping it? should I change the setting of it to increase the yields per bed? So that's the main thing I follow, I would say. And also just observation, general observation. For example, like I have so many diseases in my lettuce heads. 
that I had to stop growing them because I would have to use um, too many um, biofungicide to be able to grow them. And that's not something I'm interested in doing. So I just stopped growing them and found just prioritizing crops that grow well in the winter and forgetting crops that have too many problems. To me, this opens up so many opportunities with another aspect of gardening and vegetable growing that I'm very passionate about, which is land race growing. So now what? that you're Sorry? Uh, land race growing, so breeding seeds for certain resistance. And, you know, if this is the new frontier of growing in winter season and very few other people are doing it, you could also lead the way or partner with other people who don't have the same, you know, profitability constraints that you have to breed seeds that are more adapted to the lower light conditions, to the fungal or pest pressure that comes about in a greenhouse under these, mm -hmm. you know, temperatures, and even start to breed strains that thrive under these conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. It's, there's a lot of uh, unexplored opportunity there, I think, to breed these seeds that, are, uh, that grow well in the winter, because I don't think many seed breeders have explored uh, that side of it. That's exciting just to think mm -hmm. about. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Okay, so we're looking at kind of the, the criteria by which you, you determine if something is going to be successful, if worth doing more of. It's pretty much the same metrics. It sounds like you would evaluate any other crop in any other season as well. It's profitability, the amount of labor and uh, overhead costs to produce it, and then your ability to sell it, the profitability for bed. I'm sure you've got that down to uh, a calculation or an algorithm that you use for everything, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And so where are some of the other biggest learnings that you've taken from the research, from the experience now that you've built around growing in in winter? Mm, good question. I think the biggest learning that I have is that it's fun to do and it's exciting to do it. And it's pretty easy to do when once you really have your, a good planting calendar. Mm. Like it's kind of a... <clears throat> I it's I would say right now the winter production at the farm is like on autopilot. I do the crop planning in April. So that's another big learning I had to do. Like you need to be prepared in advance. You cannot like wake up in September and be like, oh, should I grow crops in the winter? It's too late. Yeah, like yeah. way too late. <laughs> you need you need to start. It's it's a weird process because in April, you have to uh, plant all your crops in the field, but you also need to do at the same time your winter crop planning and your head is not on in that space uh, at that time, but you still need to do it. So in April, you need to do your winter crop planning, order your seed, do your planting calendars, just set up everything. And then when September or August arrives, everything is prepared. You just need to operate your plan and you don't need, you need to arrive in September with nothing to think about. You just do the things that you plan for. And that's how you have good success with the winter production. It's just being very organized. And that's how we were set up right now on the farm and it works well, like right now, we're planting things, but we we're not asking questions. Oh, what should we do? Everything is already planned for. Yeah, that's something I've always been impressed that good market gardeners do so well 
is for planning, prep, and you know everything just runs like clockwork almost in a military fashion when you get it into a real rhythm. And yeah. well, I mean, this is a perfect time to talk about this. We even mentioned it before this chat we're having now about, I mean, you're in October, you're managing the logistics of planting for your winter crops and still having to harvest the last of what's coming out of the spring and summer planting. How is that being managed right now? What are some of the things that you've learned from juggling those two overlaps? Mm -hmm. uh, good question. I think some things I've learned is to keep the summer crew for a longer time to uh, be involved in the winter plantings and then leave the farm. So how we work here is that the uh, crew is in full charge of the vegetable production. So it's a part of their learning process to really manage like every aspect of the farm. So they stay for two years before leaving the farm as I was telling earlier. So where they're done in their, their second year, I'll, I'll make them stay until November 1st. So they're, they are helping planting the winter crops before leaving the farm. So you need to keep a bigger crew for a longer time. So here were, I would say, 10 to 12 market gardeners in the summer. And then for the winter season, we go down to four market gardeners. But you need more people to just plant all your greenhouses. And once that's done, you can decrease the size of your crew because all you're doing in the winter is weeding a bit and harvesting, washing vegetables and selling vegetables. So that's another, we didn't touch base on that, but it's a way of being profitable is to decrease your uh, salaries in the winter because the work is not that big. Like there's not a lot of tasks to be done. Everything grows so slowly that it's very like a calm atmosphere. There's, you're harvesting, you're washing, you're selling, but that's it. Like there's not like the big summer craziness. It's very a different mood, I would say, in the winter. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, we did joke about it a little before this starting this recording. It's exciting to get another yield out of the winter season, but most market gardeners are used to taking that as their holiday time. Does this just <laughs> shackle you to the farm the entire year? Like, when do you take time off now? Uh, so we take three weeks uh, of time off at Christmas. So we just leave the farm. It, it lives without us. We, we go out and nothing, no one comes on the farm for two, three weeks and other crops are okay. They're growing so slowly anyway. So we have three weeks of time off at Christmas and then we all take another week off at, during the summertime. So that's how we do it. Of course, we don't have the all winter. All winter, we're not um, on holiday, we're working. I think it's just getting a different mindset. I think right now what market most market gardeners do is that they kind of burn out during the summer and take all winter long to recover from that summer burnout. But we need to find like a better pace. You need to be working in the summer, but not like crazy, you're burning out. You need to find like a good balance between work and uh, getting some time off during the winter so that you can go through winter 
season uh, and be okay. But I think we still need at the farm to find that balance. Like we're not there yet. I think we're still having like our um, summer season is still too crazy to, and then when we go in the winter season, we're a bit too tired. So I think we need to decrease the summer production to so that it makes sense to be growing year round and that I were not like tired of growing vegetables all year round. So we still need to work on that portion of it, like the human health between, uh, behind the year round idea. I think it's a great idea, but you still need to uh, prioritize yourself in that so that you can uh, do it for many years and still be happy with it. I think I'm, as a farm manager, I'm really happy with it, but I still need to decrease the summer production so that the health is better. Sure. And I know that that's a balancing act that pretty much every farmer that I've been in touch with, and even for myself, I'm constantly trying to walk that balance. But, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, this is still in the early research phases. You've learned a ton and it's going well but there's always going to be some tweaks and improvements that need to get made. And I mean, I just think it's wonderful that you're even thinking about and prioritizing the human health aspect of this, because that is very often what gets ignored when you're in these high production systems and very quick turnover like that. Mm -hmm. And also I think it took us a long time to have the right sales. Like right now, I think we're going to have like a between 100 to $125,000 of sales in the winter. So these sales are getting to the size where I can justify to decrease the summer production. But it wasn't that way for many years. We didn't have like the sales that weren't enough to decrease the summer production. But right now we're getting to that point where we can um, have a more balanced workload throughout the year. Very cool. So, okay. If you had to go back and start this over again, or maybe give advice to a grower who's considering opening up winter production, what would you give as far as guidance, where to get started mm -hmm. and some expectations to have in the beginning? Okay. Uh, I can start with some tips. I would have, I think I have three tips for them to start. I think the first and biggest tip I would give them is be prepared in advance. As I was telling you earlier, you need to crop plan in April. And if you have a good crop plan, you, you will succeed. If you don't have a good crop plan, you will fail. So I think that's my like biggest tip is do this and it will work. And then second tip, you need to start with the right dates. So you need to start with like at least a general idea of what the dates could look like for your area. So if you know someone who uh, grows year round in your region, ask them, can they share their planting calendar? But then if you don't know anyone, we did share our planting calendar in the book, The Winter Market Gardener. So they can start with that planting calendar. And that's why we made it available because we really wanted people and farmers to start with a good like foundation of dates that they can use that will at least have a good chance of working. I know people are all around the world and they don't have like the same temperatures and light availability as us, but at least you have like a good 
ballpark um, dates that could work. And then the third tips I would say is to have know to whom you're selling your vegetables in the winter before you start planting them, because it might not be your usual customers. That was a big challenge for us. Because most, I don't know if it's the same in Europe, but in Quebec, most markets are only for summer season. So when you're in the winter season, you cannot go to farmer's market. So now you need to find where am I selling my vegetables if it's not at the farmer's market. So you really need to find these customers, make sure they're interested in these crops, uh, present them the crops you want to grow and just get that conversation going before you start because Otherwise, you'll have great crops, but not anyone to sell them to. So I think that's the three main tips I would give to someone who wants to start and try. Yeah, that's really good advice. And a lot of that is just as applicable to getting a market garden started in general. Know that you can sell it before you plant it. Make sure that you have mm -hmm. a very, very complete and thorough plan before starting the season. And I mean, like you said, there's great resources in the book. I'm looking at the contents right now. You've got appendixes for crop spacing, for the list of tools that you use, starting the fall garden at home beforehand, getting started ahead of time, and even classifications according to cold hardiness. A lot of this is really going to cut people's learning curve much, much shorter than what you had to go through. <laughs> Yeah, that was our whole goal with uh, writing the book. We wanted to take advantage of all the information we had and just give it to people so that they can start at the point where we are us, where we are right now, and start from that point, which is way farther than where we started at first, and just avoid all those costly mistakes that we did and just make sure that they have some good success for their first uh, winter season. Fantastic. I mean, that's what these resources are all about. It's what the podcast here is aiming to do is get people started mm -hmm. without having to do all of that back research and go yeah. through the learning curve that so many of us have had to do. And I'll be sure to link to where people can get this book at newsocietypublishers.com. How else can people reach out to you and learn more about your work and your research? Yeah, they can follow Femme uh, accounts we post about all the vegetables that we grow um, I don't have any accounts for myself but they can follow the, the farm accounts and they can also follow the market gardeners institute I work there and I I'm developing many contents for the winter production we have a blog there with the different articles on the subjects so they, if they want to start and learn about it they can go there Amazing. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes as well. And Catherine, thank you so much for making time today. This was a really interesting discussion. <laughs> thank you so much to you. And I hope people start uh, growing crops this winter. Thanks once again to Catherine. I've linked to all the resources that she mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. 
I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.